We're turning to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And we're going to read the whole psalm. This is a psalm of David. As we learn in the inspired title to the psalm, And beginning at verse 1, let us read God's holy word. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. And wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. Because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger. And forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plotteth against the just, and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn out the sword, and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, and to slay such as be of upright conversation. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. And in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume, into smoke shall they consume away. The wicked borroweth, and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, 
and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young, and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Depart from evil, and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loveth judgment, and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land, and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land, When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright. For the end of that man is peace. But the transgressor shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Amen. It is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to add his blessing to the public reading of his precious word for his name's sake. Let's take a moment to seek the Lord together and ask for his blessing on the proclamation of his word. Gracious Father in heaven, how we thank thee for the privilege of hearing thy holy word. Thank thee for the instruction of this psalm and how we pray that as we consider it this evening, we may know the direction of thy spirit, the author of the psalm, the one who inspired thy servant David to write the psalm. We pray that thy spirit will indeed direct our thoughts in this time together this evening. Oh, hear our cry, we pray. Grant that I may be filled with thy spirit's power to the very uttermost, and grant that through the work of thy spirit, the word of God will find its mark in our hearts tonight. Hear our cry. Meet the need of every soul. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Many biblical characters faced adversity from the ungodly. Enoch lived during the most corrupt period of world history. Now let that statement sink into your mind. Because we tend to think that the age before the flood was somehow not quite as bad as what we see now. But Enoch lived in the midst of unbelievable corruption. The earth in his days was full of violence. And every imagination of the thoughts of the people was only evil continually. But Enoch walked with God as one at peace amid the corruption. Noah preached the reality of coming judgment while he built the ark in which he and his family rode to safety in the judgment of the great flood. During those years, while he built the ark, he observed the careless people to whom he preached. They seemed to have no trouble in their lives. As Jesus said, during that time, they went about their lives. They married and were given in marriage. They bought and they sold. They seemed to have it all going their way. They prospered in that corrupt age until the day that the flood came and destroyed them all. Joseph, one of the patriarchs, received divine revelation about what was going to happen in the world, touching his family. He had dreams. They were really God's way of revealing what was going to take place. But Joseph remained in places of trouble for doing right, while those who did wrong seemed to prosper. Then there was King David. And I'm deliberately passing by many others that we could mention. But God called David from tending his father's sheep to receive the anointing as the second king of Israel. He faced the giant Goliath on the battlefield between the armies of the Israelites and the Philistines. Goliath had everything going his way. He had size. He had strength. He had the experience of numerous battles and every piece of equipment that any warrior would want. Young David, on the other hand, was inexperienced. And he proposed to face Goliath with five smooth stones and a sling. Most, including King Saul 
and David's brothers and the hosts of Israel gave David no chance to prevail. The odds were so far against him because the evil man prospered in his way. No one could blame David for fretting, for wondering about the futility of facing such an evil adversary. And yet this psalm is the inspired record of what David experienced and learned in that battle with Goliath. For Goliath was soon cut down. And we have to remember that David had a lengthy career after that time as a warrior facing many enemies. How does God's servant hope? How does he maintain his hope when the career of the ungodly seems so smooth? Haven't you asked similar questions? Doesn't God promise that it will be well with the righteous and ill with the unrighteous? Why does it so often appear to be the opposite? This psalm is an inspired essay about how God's people are to live in the world around them. Ultimately, the answer to that question lies in the person of the man who resisted unto blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. King David looked to his greater successor in this psalm, the Lord Jesus Christ, And he drew from that perfect man of whom we have read the peace that passes all understanding. For David the king possessed faith's confident peace. Faith's confident peace. The rampant spread of persecution against Christians grows by the day. In India, rabid Hindus have tortured and murdered Christians and destroyed their church buildings. Similar atrocities occur in Muslim countries. And in some African countries, the destruction of Christian places of worship and those who attend them leaves many of those people seriously injured or dead. Persecutors have sometimes shot pastors in cold blood while they were in their pulpits. Parts of Nigeria become notorious for such activities. Now, not all parts of the world feature such direct levels of persecution. But in other places where we may not witness that kind of persecution, the march of perversion poses severe threats to believers. Some artists and artisans have paid large sums of money and time to defend themselves against the persecuting laws that their states or communities have adopted. 
Just this last week, the California Assembly passed a bill by a huge margin, which the governor has said he will sign, that will indeed make it illegal for parents to interfere with the the preferred gender identity of their children, and that if they do interfere, they can lose their custody of those children. Such opposition to the truth is not new. As I have already suggested, previous periods in the history of the world featured widespread perversion and open contempt for the truth of God's revelation. The Bible tells us, for example, of Lot, who vexed his righteous soul while living among the people of Sodom. They held Lot in contempt and threatened him and his family with bodily harm for even the weakest stand he took against them. The tide of anger against those who stand for the truth rises every day. King David faced the same opposition. The battle with Goliath was more than just a little story that we tell to children in Sunday school. It was a war for the survival of the kingdom. How did David maintain his wits in that circumstance? Well, this psalm gives us the answer. It tells us how to remain at ease in a world that has lost all sense of restraint and respect. I was hearing that at the recently concluded U.S. Open Tennis Tournament in New York the last two weeks, that there was more trouble than ever before with people disrupting the play of the various matches, and that referees and other officials were expressing frustration that people would not be still. They would not be quiet. And then there was that notable incident that took place in one of the semifinal matches where three environmentalist protesters stood up and urged an end to fossil fuels while they sat in a place that was lit with fossil fuels. The world has lost all sense of restraint and respect. How how do the Lord's people deal with those situations? Now, this psalm could easily be the basis for a series of messages, but we don't have time for that. We have time only for an overview of the psalm. In that overview, we're going to observe the Lord Jesus Christ leading us in the right way. We may divide the psalm into four sections. And I'll tell you what the dividing lines are. And then as we go through, we'll deal with what each section concerns. Verses 1 through 9 are the first section. Verses 10 through 22 are the second section. 
verses 23 through 29 are the third section, and verses 30 through 40 are the fourth section. And believe it or not, we're going to get through all of that this evening. So first of all, the first nine verses of the psalm here is depravity's uncomfortable reality. Now, these verses should be a separate message in themselves, but necessity dictates tonight that we do not devote so much time to them that we miss the rest of the psalm. These verses present the problem that the Lord's people often confront. There are evildoers around. There are workers of iniquity around. They don't always parade in suggestive clothing or appear even to be hostile. But they seem to have their way in the world. And there seems no way to overcome them. We read in verse 7 of the one who prospereth in his way. He seems able to achieve all his wicked intentions. The wicked, even those who occupy prominent places of power and prestige, and there seems to be no shortage of them, appear to have the Lord's people at a disadvantage. The inspired psalmist faced this uncomfortable reality. He saw it firsthand. But the promise of these verses provides the way to face that uncomfortable reality. In verse 2 we read that the workers of iniquity shall soon be cut down like the grass. Now there are places in our country where grass grows freely. You don't have to baby it and coax it and invest a lot of money in water and fertilizer to get it to grow. And in those places, people have to mow the grass in order to keep some semblance of order. Here, the psalmist said that the workers of iniquity shall be mowed down. The cuttings will turn brown and they will rot in the heat of the sun. The workers of iniquity. In verse 9, we read that evildoers shall be cut off. This portion of the psalm asserts a series of commands. And let's look at them. In verse 1, fret not thyself. Don't fret. That is, don't twist yourself in knots. Don't be envious, in verse 1, against the workers of iniquity. In verse 7, we encounter that command again, that negative command, fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. In verse 8, we find the command again, don't fret yourself in any way to do evil. 
And there we find the definition of this fretting by the commands to cease from anger and to forsake wrath. That is, the Holy Spirit is inspiring David here to warn the people of God against getting down in the pit with the wicked. These commands go beyond what you have to avoid. That is, they are more than negative commands. Look at the other commands in this section. Verse 3, trust in the Lord. Do good. Verse 4, delight thyself also in the Lord. That is, take pleasure in the Lord. Take joy in the Lord. In verse 5, commit thy way unto the Lord, or literally, roll thy way onto the Lord. Trust also in Him. In verse 7, rest in the Lord. And notice, wait patiently for Him. We're beginning to get the idea that the secret to this peace in a world of corruption is patience. To all these commands, the Lord attached the promises of blessing and reward. The way to peace and confidence then is the path of trust. There is the response to the uncomfortable reality of depravity in the world. God is on his throne. We trust in him. And as I've said so often, we know how things are going to end. The next section of the psalm underlines the truth that the world is in two distinct camps. Verses 10 through 22. Two groups and their destinies. This section is typical of Hebrew poetic style. David considers two sides of the same situation. He considers the dividing line that separates the people of the world. On one side of the line are the wicked, and on the other are the righteous. The sovereign act of God in declaring the people of the second group to be righteous and the people of the first to be left to their evil desires is what separates the people into those groups. Now in this section of the psalm, the style of writing reminds us of the Proverbs. Often in the Proverbs you have alternating statements. And so you have the alternating descriptions of those who do evil and who as a result of God's gracious decree of justification, those who do what is right. You notice that, yet a little while and the wicked shall not be. But in verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth. In verse 12, the wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. Verse 13, the Lord shall laugh at him. 
the second psalm speaks about that laughter as well. And I look forward to the day when we hear the Lord's laughter. Verse 14, the wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow. Their sword shall enter into their own heart in verse 15. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright in verse 18, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. In verse 20, though the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. There's a sharp distinction then between the conduct of the people in each group and a sharp distinction between the destiny of the people in each group, between the destinies. The difference in destiny leads the section. In verse 10, the destiny of the wicked is that they will disappear from the world and will be almost universally forgotten. And that has been true with a few notorious exceptions who are remembered only because historians have written about them. But with few exceptions, the, the ungodly depart from this world and vanish from memory. Within a generation or two, their deeds dissolve into the fog of the past. I used to visit my aunt and uncle in Erie. And on the way into where the community where they live, there was a Presbyterian church with a graveyard. I always am interested to see what the testimonies were of those people who lived generations ago. So I determined one time when I was on my way out of the town to stop there and walk through the graveyard. And it was amazing because most of the stones you could not read. All that had been painstakingly engraved upon them had vanished through the process of weathering in two centuries. And that, to me, is a symbol of what happens to so many people. They vanish. And you can think about it in terms of families. It doesn't take very long before people from prior generations fade into oblivion. If you went to look for some of them, you would find sometimes not even the scantest evidence that they existed. That's what the wicked, that's their destiny. But in verse 11, we read about the meek. They shall inherit the earth. They shall enjoy the abundance of peace. The wicked shall be cut off. The wicked shall disappear from the world. But the meek, the godly, shall inherit the earth. Their destiny is secure. Their legacy in the world may be forgotten, 
But their destiny is secure and their delight will never end. Verse 18 reinforces the unending nature of that destiny. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright. What a wonderful statement for our encouragement. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright. He knows your days. He knows the struggles that you face day by day. He knows the discouragement that you feel when you hear the latest evidence of corruption in the world around you. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. Verse 19 tells us that the righteous will not be dismayed or ashamed in the evil time. That's a reference to the day of judgment. The day when the wrath of God pours out upon the world. They won't be ashamed. They won't be saying, oh, I wish we had done something different in our lives. They will know the power of sustaining grace and mercy even when others are starving. The righteous observe the conduct of the wicked as we see in verses 12 and 14. The wicked plotteth against the just. Huh, we see evidence of that all the time. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. Here's the fury. This is the revelation of what drives the wicked and the ungodly. They're furious. In verse 14, the wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy to slay such as be of upright conversation. What is it that Peter writes in one of his epistles? That the ungodly speak evil of the righteous because they object to their stand for truth. But the righteous people, the justified people, Comfort themselves with the truth in this section that we find first in verse 13. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. The Lord sees the day of judgment, just as he saw the day of the flood coming in the world that vanished. The Lord shall laugh at him. Verse 15, their sword shall enter into their own heart and their bows shall be broken. All their devices will fail. Verse 17, the arms of the wicked shall be broken. But the Lord upholdeth the righteous. Verse 20, the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume. Into smoke shall they consume away. So here are these two groups, the wicked and the righteous. And to consider these two groups that compose the population of the world and to understand the opposite destinies they have 
is to draw comfort from the truth that the righteous judge is the one who makes the difference between them. How can you surrender then to vexation when you know the difference between the groups and the destinies? Understanding this difference that the Holy Spirit has put before us enables us to regard the wicked people and the nations of the world with confidence that God will prevail in the right. And that leads us to the third section of the psalm that focuses on the inward and outward life of the people of God. Verses 23 through 29, grace's fountain of joy. The first two verses of this section expound the pattern of the godly life. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. The good man, the godly man, the righteous man, the justified man, for no one can lay claim to being righteous apart from the justifying grace of God. The justified man walks in the ways of the Lord and rejoices to do so, takes delight in that life. And yet we find in verse 24, the righteous person is not yet perfect. He will still or she will still fall into sin. But that person will not remain in that sin. We read in verse 24, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. He may fall, but he will not be utterly cast down. Let us turn to the minor prophets in the prophecy of Micah. We were in Micah this morning, and we're turning to the very same chapter again this evening, to chapter 7, but this time to verse 8. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. How many times when the Lord's people fall do the ungodly make a mockery of them? But Micah said, Rejoice not against me. I will arise. The Lord's people will arise. Though he fall, he will not be utterly cast down. The next two verses in Psalm 37 show that the blessing by the Lord on those he has justified, continues throughout the ages of life. Verse 25. Verse 25 is a text that those who are young cannot fully understand as to its scope. It takes you to be my age to understand this text fully. I have been young, David said, and now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Here's an encouragement. Wherever you are in life, here's an encouragement. 
David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. God does not abandon his people. He could remember what it was to be young. It's always a good thing for those who are older to remember what it was to be young. When I deal with my grandchildren, I always have it in my mind what it was to be at their stage in life. But in all of the troubles of the righteous and in all of the persecutions from the wicked against him, David never saw God forsake his people. In verse 28, David wrote, that the Lord never forsakes his saints. Never. He never forsakes his saints. He preserves them forever. The seed of the wicked shall be cut off, but not the seed of the righteous. And the martyrs through history have relied on this certainty. In St. Andrews, Scotland, the thing the world remembers the most about St. Andrews is the foundation of golf. And there is a course called the Old Course there. And a number of major championships have been contested upon it. But if you look at the shot of the buildings in the background at the beginning in the last hole, you see a monument which no one in the media ever mentions. But that monument is a monument to the martyrs who died in St. Andrews for the cause of Christ. They relied on this certainty that the Lord will never forsake his saints. The righteous people will enter their inheritance and dwell in it forever. It's hard for us to comprehend that concept because we're so bound by the limits of our lives and our brief lifespans in this world. But forever, the righteous will enjoy their inheritance. So these words in this section embolden our hope in the Lord. They enable us to live at peace in the world of the ungodly. But David wasn't finished. He drew attention under divine inspiration to the rock of the righteous people's confidence. That's the fourth section, verses 30 to 40, conformity to Christ. The fourth section of the psalm makes personal the truth that David has already written. Those who are righteous have the law of God in their hearts. The wicked set their sights to destroy the righteous, but the Lord will not abandon his people. Verse 34 is the exhortation to faith. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. 
When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. Wait on the Lord. In the face of the ungodly, wait on the Lord. When perversion spreads across the land, wait on the Lord. The wicked boast themselves as though they will live forever. Verse 35, the psalmist said, I have seen the wicked in great power. Spreading himself like a green bay tree. And how many rulers throughout history have demonstrated and exercised that truth in great power, spreading their authority as they imagine far and wide. But we read in verse 36 that every wicked person dies and vanishes from the world. He passed away. He died. And he was not. And it doesn't take long until all that influence disappears as well. People read and write about Adolf Hitler and all of the other vicious tyrants in the history of the world. But it doesn't take long before they are gone, after they are gone, before all that they did is brought to nothing. Ultimately, the people of God, the righteous people, look to a particular person. We find that person in verse 37, Mark, the perfect man, now, I know there are commentators who want to uh, say that this is a reference to the righteous man, but I believe it is a reference to the Redeemer. Mark the perfect man. There's only one perfect man. Mark him. Observe him. Study him. For the end of that man is peace. If Christ is in your heart, if you are marking him, you will know the reality of peace. He is the strength of his people in the time of trouble. So when we come to verse 39, we read the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. And in the last verse of the psalm, we come full circle because the cause for fretfulness vanishes in the assurance that the Lord will never betray his people's faith in him. The Lord shall help them. The Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Those who trust in the Lord will not come to the place where they say, I thought I was doing the right thing, but somehow I missed it. Those who trust in the Lord, who mark the perfect man, are conformed to that perfect man. 
And on the day of judgment, Christ will own them as his. And all the wicked, going all the way back to Enoch's day with which we began, all the wicked in that day of judgment, for the people who died in the flood and whose bodies have never been found, the people who died in the flood didn't go out of existence. They are still conscious. And there will come a day when they will stand before God at the judgment of the great white throne and they will hear the testimony of their wickedness and their rebellion against the truth. And God's people on that day will hear the acquittal. These are his people, the people he has justified. So then, what does it all mean? It means that in the midst of corruption, we may follow the example of Enoch and walk with God. We may walk with God, enjoying that fellowship with God and knowing, as Enoch knew, that the day of judgment was going to come. And it did come. And for those who were in the ark with Noah, they found themselves delivered in that day of judgment. Amazing to think, and I often think of this, that on the day when the flood came, people who had often heard the proclamation of the truth realized too late that what Noah had said was true. But there were only eight in the ark. Only eight who believed in that day. All the others were taken away. They were cut off. So it is going to be in the day when Christ appears. So for the people of God, there's great confidence to say with David, we mark the perfect man. And as we mark him, we live in the peace that comes from his work in our lives. Let's bow together in prayer. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, we thank thee for thy holy word. We thank Thee that it is not a vain thing for us to sit and contemplate the message of Thy Holy Word. O Lord, we pray that Thy Word will resonate in our souls. We confess, O Lord, that oftentimes we fall, but how we rejoice in the promise Thou wilt not forsake us even in the days of our falling. O Lord, give us grace that we will desire to rise again and to know the undertaking of our great advocate in the heavens. O Lord, hear our cry, we pray. Stamp thy word upon our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen.